Hello and welcome to Earthcast, a platform for discussions about bridging the resource gap between people and planet. I am Olivia Taylor, or Olivia Earth on the socials, your host, and I will be interviewing a series of change makers, thinkers and disruptors, and asking them about their areas of expertise. Together, we will discover fresh perspectives and the most useful levers in society for change. The main question that we will explore is how are trade-offs made between people, planet and profit? More specifically, how do we solve wicked problems and make decisions at the margin? If you would like to hear more from Earthcast, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking to Wandile Sihlobo, who is the Chief Economist of the Agricultural Business Chamber of South Africa, and the author of Finding Common Ground, Land, Equity, and Agriculture. Wandile was appointed as a member of President Cyril Ramaphosa's Presidential Economic Advisory Council in 2019, after serving on the Presidential Expert Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture between 2018 and 2019. So I first heard about Wandile through his Business Day column. And Wandile, I've been wanting to ask you about a topic that has been trending recently. Um, so there's been a resurgent interest in permaculture. And, you know, you work in the agricultural sector. So I want to know, how does permaculture, as a resurgent interest, how does it fit into the African setting? And is it something realistic? Yeah, um, thanks, Olivia, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, great uh, uh, to be here, and thanks for reading that Business Day column. Um, so, you know, you write these things, you don't know if uh, uh, they reach the people and uh, gravitate on what you're saying and all of that, so I appreciate that. Now, on your question about the permaculture side, I mean, I think generally when we think about the food sector, especially from where I'm sitting, both on an organizational side, but also just as an ag economist, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that we are too prescriptive on what people should be farming. Should they be focusing more on industrial farming? Should they be focusing only on a permaculture farming? I think the two things that people worry about a lot is the issue of sustainability uh, within your farm so that if you are practicing on this land today, the next five years, you should still be able to practice on that land and so on and so on. But also sustainability on a financial side to say, if you are producing something and you are really thinking about the market side, what are some of the most efficient things to do? And I think those are also the two key theme questions that the farmers are thinking about is really sustainability environmentally as well on the financial side. So permaculture in as far as it fits in some sort of settings, uh, primarily those that are in a relatively small scale farming entities, there it gets to be able to be adapted and play on a huge role. But I think that as you go to a major industrial farm, um, it, there could be some difficulties because I mean, the bigger the farm, the bigger you use certain machinery also. And uh, I think that uh, becomes a, a, a difficulty then about your harvesting and some of the processes. But I think in one way is just to say, whatever the land allows and whatever gives you uh, sustainability financially and an environmental side, uh, farmers really have to, 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 to practice that sort of a farming system. Thank you so much. No, I really appreciate that. Um, I have been wanting to ask you that question for a while. So given some of the articles in your book, uh, Finding Common Ground, I, I want to know how you think 
agriculture can bring about transformation or as you prefer to call it inclusive growth in South Africa and what support does the agricultural sector need in order to achieve this? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been discussing this um, uh, uh, theme, Olivia, since, uh, I mean, 1994, you look back at some of the white papers and stuff that were coming up um, in as far as agriculture. And I do think that if you go back to the early literature that was written by people like Professor Nick Fink at Stellenbosch University, Professor Johan Kirsten, then with the University of uh, Pretoria, the late great Mohammed Karan, um, really a lot of the work that was, well, was in that era did spell out on what are some of the things that we need to do in order to achieve uh, transformation and transformation in this sense by really broadening the percentage of production that is coming from black farmers on a land pattern side, but also within the output of agricultural sector. Because we're speaking now, for example, in, in, in January 2021, but if you had to look at the output of South Africa's agricultural sector on a racial terms, I mean, black farmers are still forming roughly between five and 10% if you aggregate everything. Um, that just shows you then that, you know, in a country with a population dynamics like ours, you really do you want to see that number broadening and inclusivity and, and, and being more inclusive because you're also thinking about the social cost of not transforming in the long run, it will cause you some bit of problems. Now, then the question there comes on, which is where I think many people usually uh, think about it. Because when we talk about transformation, folks think about you are cutting a loaf of bread, you're moving a slice from one plate to another plate. But what you're really looking at is to say, how do you bake a much more bigger loaf of bread so that the pie can grow and we, we feed everybody else. And then to your question, that brings us back, Olivia, to the point of saying, what other land can we actually physically expand on, on agricultural output? Um, on that, uh, if you look at the Transguy area, for example, there's a lot of land that is still lying in there and in all of the former homelands uh, of South Africa. But I think the three growth frontiers of South Africa's agricultural expansion, the Eastern Cape, uh, KZN, um, and Limpopo, that's where there's still um, some good potential that can be explored there. So the first angle is to say, let's utilize some of the land that is underutilized. But the government also is sitting with more than 2 million hectares of land that has actually been bought through the land reform process since 1994, and some never really transferred to people, is to say, how do we begin to transfer that land with tradable long-term leases to folks? And then coming back then to some of the land that is on privately owned, uh, largely by white farmers at this point to say what physical, what, what some of the instruments that we can actually use to incentivize land reform processes to actually carry out in a sustainable way, economically and environmentally. And I think all of those, the answers to those questions really do lie up. And from a government side, uh, the work that we did with the presidential advisory panel on land reform and agriculture um, uh, in, in 2019, uh, chaired by Dr. Matlati, actually spelled out some of, of the things that needed to be done there. It's really about going back to that document, pulling up some of those instruments, um, and they involved really both private sector and business um, uh, on, on ensuring that we do see some bit of uh, progress and transformation in agriculture. Thank you, yeah. And I, I would like to talk further on land reform. Um, Wandile, what, what are the key themes that we need to be thinking about in land reform? Because title, uh, title deeds have come up a lot in your writing. You know, where, where do title deeds sit on the scale of importance? 
given land expropriation without compensation and these discussions, if the government can take your land away, does it diminish the value of a title deed? Yeah, I mean, uh, on a discussion about um, expropriation without compensation, just rightly outlined now, it's not a policy um, as yet, but it's one of the, it's not an official policy as yet, but it's one of the discussions that is out there and uh, people are weighing in on onto that. So, but personally, I don't think that that's the desired approach that we need uh, to look at. Because obviously then once you begin expropriating and then that undermines the economic value of the very same land that you are dealing with, then that defeats the purpose. Because what is happening now, you are actually dealing, um, Olivia, with two points here. It's a restorative justice question um, and, and, and also the economic um, uh, growth question. So it's about how do you restore justice by dealing with the historical legacies of South Africa uh, that actually deprive Black people of the ownership of the land, but at the same time, never underestimating the economic importance and or implications of whatever policy front you actually take, which is where then expropriation gets not to be the desired approach um, to deal with land reform. But then how do you get around doing that? There's a number of instruments, which in the book we speak about that, but also in the presidential advisory panel report, they are there. One of those, for example, which I'm delighted now that they are on policy, because there's farmers who actually say, look, we, we want to donate land, uh, but there is no instruments on how to actually do that. We want to see land reform happening. Right now, there is a land loan donations policy that has been drafted and it will be, be official soon that actually begins to outline what that uh, path should be, what incentives will be in place in that. And the second point that would actually be important is the land reform fund, which actually will be able to aggregate capital from some of the private citizens, um, donations and various organizations, and also within the state streamline and take money from some of the areas that are, is not really good allocation, put it under one port. And then that port of money is the one that deals with buying strategic land that is for uh, 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 land reform purposes. And in that debate of buying land from the market, there's been also interesting uh, discussions from people like um, uh, one of South Africa's great lawyers advocate, uh, Tembeka Nukaitobi, who talks about we shouldn't be actually acquiring land at a market price. Rather, we should look at how do we define just um, and, 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 and equitable uh, uh, purchase on the end, and then we're not paying literally the market value, but find another way that is interesting. That too is something that is interesting to listen and see what, what, what way then can we be paying for that land while we're not really doing the full-blown expropriation, which some are suggesting. Another one then is some of the land supply that I was talking about, because I mean, the government has been good at acquiring the land from 1994. But the failure has been to say, how do you distribute it to people with title deeds? Title deeds then to your question, which gets to be important because as much as you can get land and give it to people, but if it's not followed through with the right financial support to get that land to be uh, fully productive, um, then that is not gonna be um, assisting a lot because you want people to have land so that they can be able to create some economic activity, make many communities better, and then have better living standards across our communities. And then if then that land comes on uh, with non-tradable leases, no access to finance, it doesn't really address or improve the living standards of those communities. So it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex uh, uh, discussion, but I think it's an important one to, 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 to be had. And it forces us now to think back, which I think in part, it has influenced also government releasing last year, 700,000 uh, hectares of land 
which I think it's a right step to be doing, but that long-term tradable leases rather than locking people on an untradable lease of about 30 years or so. That's, that's very interesting. And really, I really like how you've put that as well and, and how you are, are thinking about these issues. Because I think a lot of people, especially South Africans, think that the land reforms discussions are very binary, either a full um, compensation without, um, uh, sorry, expropriation without compensation or, or the complete opposite. So I, I really have enjoyed how you phrased that. But further on from that, how do we then ensure that farms are transferred to the right beneficiaries who will productively use the land through uh, um, through these processes? And how do we then capacitate these beneficiaries? Because I think that's also something that you've spoken about. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's one of the mistakes, uh, Olivia, that we, we've, we've made or, uh, the, the past couple of years or so. Because I think what, what, what was the issue is that it wasn't really clear in South Africa on who gets to benefit on the land, particularly because, I mean, remember, you have three branches. You have, you have uh, redistribution, you have a restitution, um, and you have tenure. On a tenure land, which really basically says, let's make sure that wherever people reside in their former homelands, they get to have now you know, uh, rights over that land. We pretty much failed on doing that. Um, uh, there's no convincing evidence that was actually been work uh, any progress on that. There's a lot of research from the colleagues at the University of Western Cape, Ruth Hall, uh, Ben Cousins, and the guys that are doing um, uh, exciting work uh, on onto those issues. Um, and the second one was obviously the restitution. Restitution, you go on, you prove that your 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 family or whoever owned a certain piece of land, and then you, you can be compensated by getting the land back or by cash and all of that. There's been some bit of progress, but not really exciting progress. But where there's, uh, and it links back to your question, is on a redistribution one, because there then there's no mechanism of saying, should it be one dealer, should it be Bulelani or Sipo, who should be selected to actually get there. And another research then that was coming up, some from the University of the Western Cape and some, I think, from Rhodes University, if I'm not mistaken, really showing that the people who, added, who ended up benefiting a lot from land reform were rich Black men. Uh, some of the people that could have benefited women were some of the people that, uh, you know, were at the lower end of the beneficiary, people with disabilities, young people, people with no political connections, they were not really benefiting uh, more. And then now, how do you begin to bring some bit of fairness in that process so that the right jockey, if one can use the agricultural language, gets to sit on that land? Because we have to think about it. Is it the land for building a fair tree? Is it a land for agriculture? Is it a land for housing? Then if it's for land for agriculture, we give it to a best person who can utilize it for agriculture. If it's for housing, then you look at vulnerable communities that do not have housing, then you prefer those. If it's for industrial, you look at person who's gonna do an industrial activity, then you prefer those because at the end of the day, as we do land reform, back to the point I was making, you're dealing with two issues, the restorative justice question, as well as an economic growth question. So as we do land reform, we should know that the end goal is for this land to be productive, create jobs for people, and uh, bring economic activity in those communities. And as the last point on that, I mean, we at least now have some bit of hope in a sense that uh, a beneficiary selection criteria policy has been drafted, um, yet to be refined, but it does begin to address some of these injustices that we saw happening in the past couple of years. Thank you. And I, I again, I've really liked how you've put that and, and, and how you're thinking about these issues. 
Now, I have a, a more controversial question to ask you, or, or, or perhaps not controversial, but to dispel a narrative that I hear in South Africa a lot, which is really negative that I hear. And it's that, and I quote, um, you know, black guys get given land, but they don't know how to farm. And you've explained why this is a problem. And because I quote, government has failed to give people full ownership of the land so that they can make whatever business decision best suits them and use the land as collateral to get money for investing in farming. So my question to you, Andila, is how do we flip the switch on this narrative and get better support to farmers who are not being incentivized to farm um, land they don't already have control over? Yeah, I mean, you you 100% correct that. I mean, because because we, we we hear that 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 narrative, like, as I said, like a lot. And I do think that it goes back to the point um, of saying we we when you're dealing with land reform, you should know what the end goals are, which is what I am uh, excited about, at least now, that it, people know that we're thinking about land reform, but we're thinking about it of saying, how does it empower those communities? And I think the way of dealing with that, because it's not helpful to buying as government a farm, maybe let's say as a matter of an example, the farm needed a, a 10 million rands or so uh, a year to capitalize it and make sure that everything uh, works fine in, in that farm from infrastructure to, to other day-to-day uh, -day operations. And then you give it to someone and then this person, you don't follow through with the proper follow-up support after that farm. And then the secondly, there's no way they can accept any, they can go to any bank as a, and use that land and that, those assets as a collateral to lend against so that they, to borrow against so that they can be able to, to, to do their farming activity. Those people are set up to, to fail. And secondly, you have not even done a proper homework of selecting people that have the skills of carrying up that entity, that have the drive of carrying up the entity. And I think that those are all the past mistake. And then how do we get around that? We get around that by making sure that the beneficiary selection criteria policy is followed clearly, and then we select the right people. Secondly, their follow-up support that is needed, either financially or on a skill side, that is also done appropriately. And I do think that thereafter, the most fundamental one, you have to give people tradable long-term leases or title deeds. And then what the government can hedge against, because I think that there is also a fear that you will give a lot of these black guys land and then they sell it back to white people. And then now you end up having expenditure on land, but the ownership is still owned by white folks. Then how do you deal with that situation? Then government can actually have their first right of refusal whereby if somebody wants to sell them that piece of land, then the state will be the first one to do that. Our neighbors, I think in Namibia, they have that. So we can borrow some of those things and use and put them on. And what I'm excited is that there is beginning to be some bit of discussions about how do you deal with, with, with those issues. And I think people are studying closely the mistakes of the past couple of years, and wanting to ensure that as we go forward, we don't really get to, to experience those complications again. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate that. That's interesting to think about perhaps borrowing policy from other African countries. I think I know South Africa, we 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 are very proud of our constitution. So reaching out to to borrow some policies will will be, I think, really good for us. But Wandila, on a slightly different note. You've spoken about the biggest threats to agriculture in, in some of your writing, and you've said that climate change is an important threat, but safety is more pressing. Can you please elaborate a little bit on what you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a big challenge of um, a crime in South Africa at, at this point. 
um, in rural areas in general. I know that, you know, uh, over the past couple of, of months or weeks, we talked a lot about farm murders, but I do think that there is just a general rural crime issue because either you're talking about with people from Ennobo, uh, you hear all of these stories across all of these rural areas, which is the area that I think that it, it needs to be uh, prior, prior, prioritized. Because I mean, you're sitting on now, you are selling a sector saying people should go into this sector uh, produce, um, uh, put money on it, sit on it and work effectively, then you have to create a safer environment for people to be able to do that. But if every day we read about some of the really cruel incidences that do happen in rural South Africa, that, that over time could get to be a, a really a, 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 a danger on, on the sector. So that's why I felt that as, as much as we are starting now at a national level to have a discussion with it, it's something that really needs to be, to, to be focused on. And I think then after that, that's where you begin to move to even much more bigger risks on a climate change side, which then it's something that you approach globally with some of the other partners about thinking about what, what to do. And obviously in your own individual country, you begin thinking about what are some of the better farming uh, methods, either it's a no-till farming and all of that, then begin promoting all of those so that you 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 conserve your, your, your environment um, in, in, in that space. So that's the framework I was thinking on. I do think that the safety issue, because we can deal with it domestically as South Africa, then that should be prioritized. And then we link up with other global partners as we begin to think about some of the major risks um, that, that, that needs their cooperation. And Wandile, how do you as an economist think about the trade-offs made between, <clears throat> excuse me, made between agricultural profit, land conservation and social concerns or job creation? You know, where, where are the gray areas in the debt in the debate and the challenges to overcome this? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's actually major, major trade-offs um, onto this. Because at the end of the day, if you are farming, you are in a business. And uh, it's not in your interest to degrade the land uh, so that at least for the next two seasons, you can maximize whatever you think is your maximum yields that you can get. But rather, yes, you, you strive to maximize the yields, which then uh, uh, boost your profit. But at the same time, I mean, you are always ever more concerned about what's the long-term implication of this, especially if, again, you have a responsibility of having title deeds, it's your farm, you know that perhaps this might be an inheritance even of your next generation. Then you really take care and think carefully about what you get to do in those uh, pieces of land. But then when it comes to the question of the social one around the jobs. I mean, uh, the, the evidence is there. If you think of South Africa in 1960, for example, we had roughly 101.6 million people working in South Africa's agricultural sector. And if you think of it right now, for example, as of the last quarter of 2020, we had people just over 800,000 people that are working in the sector. Over time, as technologies and economies of scale became a norm in agriculture, we began to see some labor substitution in some areas one way or another. Then I think that that's why South Africa has been very clear on its approach to say, for agriculture, if we are expanding, let's try to put incentives 
for labor-intensive um, agricultural subsectors. If you think about the horticulture, for example, which is really the fruits and vegetable cluster, there there's a high value for the products, but some of them are labor-intensive, which means that for some fellow South Africans who have not been fortunate to get a, a very higher education, there could still be jobs there either at the farm, either at the agro-processing at the firms and packaging systems and all of that. So the technology that will apply will not necessarily be fully, you know, uh, replacing labor, but I think that the reskilling of people gets to be important, but also the policy approach that you apply by incentivizing the labor intensive industries like fruits and vegetables is one of the key things that I think South Africa has been um, uh, somewhat successful in, because right now we have more people actually working in those subsectors. I have so enjoyed listening to your insights and I really appreciate your time speaking with me today. Um, and before I say goodbye, I have one last question for you. And I would really like to know, given your expertise in agriculture and economics, what questions should I have asked you? Oh, um, Olivia, I think, I think you asked, <laughs> you asked the, 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 the right questions. Um, perhaps I think, uh, I think one of the one of the or the difficult or the difficult things or one of the things that I'm having in mind, uh, perhaps it's something we could discuss in the future, is this question of saying how do we how do African countries at this time around, um, as we are thinking about the recovery from uh, COVID nineteen shock, how do African countries utilize agriculture in a sustainable way as one of the subsectors? on driving, on, as one of the sectors on driving the economy on a recovery side. What needs to be done to get that economy, that agricultural sector of either of Gambia, of Uganda, of Nigeria, Kenya, to actually be much more productive this time around uh, to levels that we do see when we look at some of the provinces of the Eastern Cape, like of, this, of South Africa, Free State, Eastern Cape, KZN. How do those, uh, that those levels of productivity get to happen in the African continent? And, and, and I think, uh, many people usually say the technologies that South Africa use, genetically modified stuff, assist. Yes, those do assist. And then the African continent, um, we have to think about how do we make sure that the governments in the African continent are more open to those technologies, but also those technologies are not destructive to, 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 to the environment. So those are some of the key big themes that I think that are important to exploring um, in, in future conversation. But I have really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. And thank you so very much for having me in the podcast. Thank you for joining me today at Earthcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Let's chat next episode, where I will be asking more creatives and intellectual disruptors about making decisions at the margin. See you next time.